This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and professor of religious studies, Chris Beish, discusses his 20-year-long regime of psychedelic exploration and therapy. He was joined by CIIS professor Sean Kelly for a conversation that was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on November 16, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Chris, here we are. Hey, Sean. <laughs> um, well, so much has changed since we first uh, knew that we would be in conversation together. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the world, how's this? Okay. Of course, the world in general continues to careen into its uh, multiple mutually reinforcing crises, but in this country, at yeah. least, there is. Uh, more than half, at least, of uh, the voting public who are still in, in shock uh, and various levels of grief and despair and disbelief. Yeah. Um, so I, I would like to bring this into our conversation, but not quite yet. Uh, let's, let's be better to begin with uh, building it up a little bit, yeah. let the audience get to know a bit more about you. Yeah. Uh, although I know there are many here who already know you personally and certainly know your work, but there are others and there will be others listening uh, who don't know anything about you. So let's cover a bit of that. Yeah. You had a very, uh, as I did, traditional academic uh, yeah. training, um, undergraduate degree in Notre Dame, uh, uh, Master's Cambridge New Testament Criticism and yeah. PhD. At First Love. Yeah. Brown University, mm -hmm. Philosophy and Religion. Um, and yet you're uh, pretty soon after, I mean, your first book, Life Cycles, which is a scholarly uh, exploration of reincarnation of all things. Right? Yeah. So already branched out pretty soon, at least in terms of your first book. Yeah. Can you just say a little bit about how that yeah. that something was already happening pretty soon there with, with past lives, and why, why that? When I started teaching at uh, YSU in 1978, I met two people's work in the first year that changed my life. One was Ian Stevenson, uh, professor, Carlson professor at University of Virginia, and his research with small children who had spontaneous memories of previous lives. And in one reading, he convinced me that reincarnation was a fact of life, which turned my world upside down because it hadn't been part of my graduate studies at all. Uh, and I had to erase my blackboard and start all over again, uh, thinking in those terms. But more seminal was Stan Groff's work. And I read Realms of the Human Unconscious uh, in that first year, two years after it had just been published. And in one reading, I, I knew I had found my life's work. Uh, I, he very quickly convinced me that psychedelics were an extraordinarily significant philosophical revolution, that it would represent a before and after point, that I became convinced that people in my discipline, which was philosophy of religion, would soon, uh, we were making a shift to speaking out of a conceptual basis to speaking out of an, uh, an experiential basis. But to do that, uh, you had to do the work first before you could begin to spin the theories. So that's what convinced me to start uh, working with psychedelics using Stan Gross paradigm. But had you already experienced psychedelics prior no. to reading that book? Not at all. Uh, so how old were you uh, when you had your first experience? 30. Saturn return. Huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is unusual for people uh, for whom yeah. it's going to play such a role to come to it through uh, an academic, intellectual, mm, through discourse, through, through a book. And that it, that it, all right, so you're, can you say anything about your first encounter? Was it, was it uh, in the context of what we're going to talk a bit more about, or was yeah. it? Yeah, all my work, all the sessions, which found, which are the core of what we're talking about tonight, 73 sessions that took place between 1979 and 1999, a 20-year period of work, 
All 73 of those sessions were done in following a strict protocol, stands protocol, completely internalized sessions, completely augmented by music. Um, after four sessions, all of them were high-dose sessions. All of them were in 500 to 600 micrograms, which I wouldn't recommend. I, I wouldn't do it that way again if I did it again. Uh, but basically, all of the sessions were in that very deeply internalized, carefully processed, carefully started, uh, always with the sitter, and then uh, thoroughly processed after the session. So, so, so a consecrated sitter for every session, not... Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. and you do not want to go in these territories without having somebody who can handle the reality functions for you because, to me, the essence of this art is surrender. You have to be willing to lose control, and in order to lose control, you have to have somebody there who can take care of you. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, do you remember now looking at Realms of the Human Unconscious, what, what you read? Because you had spent all these years studying uh, mysticism, uh, deep engagement with sacred texts. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what experiences you may have had in childhood that um, drew you to religious studies and so on, but and we might get to that. But what was yeah. it in Stan's book that, that made you decide to do this, which was quite extraordinary? Can you remember the, the, in particular, what was there a feeling tone or a, or a particular idea or... It was the method. I mean, basically, I recognized the paradigm. I recognized the transpersonal experiences that he was hinting at and pointing to. But it was the method that convinced me that, first, the intellectual caliber of the work that he was producing. And then very quickly, you know, LSD psychotherapy followed. Mm -hmm. Well, realms of, the human, of uh, a human encounter with death and then LSD psychotherapy. But he convinced me that there was a method that you could use to explore these states of consciousness, that it could be done safely, hmm. and it, it had the potential to move you faster into deeper states of consciousness. Now, I had been meditating for a number of years beforehand, and I had hit the number of the blocks that meditators usually hit. Um, and my first thinking was, uh, well, I'll just use this therapy for a little while to break through those blocks and, and get to my goal of enlightenment faster. And that turned out to be a false set of assumptions. Uh, but that was my first orientation, coming out of an Eastern, kind of an, of an enlightenment paradigm to move to enlightenment faster, to accelerate and deepen this process. Uh, that agenda was completely overtaken by a second agenda which is the agenda of exploring the universe in these deep, non-ordinary states, which is really, they're not separate entirely, but they are, they're distinct. They are mutually reinforcing mm -hmm. uh, agendas. So while you were doing these sessions, and it's over a 20-year period, but there was, a, there was a hiatus in between, right? Yeah, there was four years of work, a six-year hiatus, and then 10 years of work. But in the whole period of uh, the both periods of doing the work, you were yeah. you were carrying on your um, maintaining your professional persona and work in the world yeah. at, in in a fairly conservative context and setting and so on. And yeah. nobody found out. Your colleagues didn't find out. Uh, I don't know about who found out. Um, certainly, the the feds didn't find out. Um, how did you pull that off? Well, and at what cost? I knew that uh, if you're going to do this work, I knew that I had to do it completely underground. The good people of the state of Ohio do not like their professors doing illegal substances. And so I knew if I was going to do this, I had to uh, split my life. So I, had, I developed two lives. I had my daytime job, academic job, where I was teaching courses in religious studies. I was teaching a traditional set of curriculum, which I, I tweaked it and bent it through the years into more radical areas. But I was basically a very conventional professor doing those type of things. And then I had my nighttime job where I was doing the shamanic work. And I would spend a number of weekends every year going into deep non-ordinary states and recording them, processing them, digesting them. But I did not, I never brought that to the attention of my students. Now, some of my faculty over time, you know, they learned what I was doing. We knew, they were friends of mine. Uh, we worked together. But they could not enter into discussion with me about these things because they just, you know, over years, over the years, 
we did enter into intellectual discussion, but they couldn't answer beyond that intellectual discussion. But basically, I kept these two sides of my life separate. Um, I did that consciously. I knew what I was doing. I knew there would be a time when I would bring this work forward. But over time, I was surprised uh, at the wear and tear of that separation. When you split your life so severely in those different categories and you maintain that split consciously, it, it does things to you. Uh, it split me in a way, since, since my natural instinct is to explore, to learn, to acquire information, knowledge, and then I want to share it. But then to have this knowledge, to have the, but I could not share it. I could share it indirectly, but I could not share it directly. Over time, that became um, increasingly stressful. So I retired from YSU a little bit early, precisely to start writing more explicitly and to bring those two sides of my life together. Hmm. But during the the active years, did you not have any? I'm thinking back um, at my own initiation yeah. and. Um, you know, I, I was I was 13, and uh, there was no. Uh, it was not the Groff Protocol, put it that yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, it was what was to be my 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 future high school auditorium at a concert, yeah. um, and uh, you know there was no intention, there was no support. I didn't know, you know, yeah. but afterwards I felt compelled to speak about it with those who knew. I mean, yeah. there's a sense that you you get that you like the ancient mariner if you know, if you know that poem yeah. uh, who's come back from this um, initiatory journey and he, you, you grab the next the first person next to you and yeah. you want to tell them your story was there no one that you could talk to even by correspondence in that way well I mean your, your, uh, partner, your partner my partner uh, my wife who's my first wife Carol she was a sitter in all of my sessions. She was a clinical psychologist. Uh, I could talk with her. Uh, but for a long period of time, I basically held it. I held it by myself. I mean, in my home, I held it with her. Uh, but I held it by myself. Um, I just, I was kind of physically isolated in Ohio. Mm. I wasn't part of the Bay Area community at that time. I hadn't made contact with the people here at CIS. Um, I kind of went into a very long retreat. Uh, I had the books of the consciousness community, uh, which provided maps for some of these more radical experiences, Stan's work particularly. But then when my experiences kind of went off the edges of those maps, mm -hmm. uh, it took me, I had to figure out what was going on. I spent those years uh, processing my experiences and trying to figure out what the new maps might be that would could account for my experiences, but basically, yeah, there wasn't. I didn't have a community to to talk with. Mm. Now, um, you've said a little bit about your agenda going into it. You you had discovered, or you thought you had discovered, a method that would give you firsthand experience of these realms that you had devoted your professional life to to uh, studying. Yeah. Um, and um, but you had you had some surprises in store, quite a few surprises relative to what you had initially anticipated yeah. uh, as your agenda. What uh, yeah. in particular? I, I mean, I'm I'm interested in in one big surprise, and that is uh, at least the way uh, the way I understand it from our conversations and reading your work. You approached it initially sort of therapeutically as well, and the model yeah. at least you were drawing from coming from Stan seemed to be based on a therapeutic model. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and yet that, you say that that got broken open yeah. somehow. Can you say something about that? Well, the classic model is you do this work, you kind of, you, you kind of open up the individual psyche, you go into a different relationship with the universe, a, a deeper communion with the universe in this hyper-augmented, amplified state, whatever blocks that are in your being, whatever psychological trauma or physical trauma, you know, are kind of pulled up. You confront them and confronting them, there is a healing that takes place. There is a deeper uh, communion with the universe that takes place. But the whole model is basically... Uh, the individual patient, the individual personal model of transformation. And I got into experiences of uh, profound, what I call the ocean of suffering, uh, dimensions of 
pain and suffering that were so large and they lasted for so long, they went on for so many years that uh, I, I began to understand eventually that I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of what was happening within a, a model of individual healing. That I began by integrating Rupert Sheldrake's work in morphogenetic fields and morphic field theory and form, theory of formative causation, by integrating his work and Stan's work, I began to have a, an intellectual framework that began to jive with my inner experience. And that is because, because we are a member of a species, when, you open, when your individual mind opens up and you begin to move into larger collective states of mind, uh, the healing that begins to be generated, the confrontation with pain and suffering which is generated, uh, begins to open up into the vast expanse of human history. You begin to be a conduit. If you, Let me back up. If you're willing to, you can become a conduit for a kind of healing which is not centered on, uh, focused on healing the individual, but it's basically focused on healing some aspect of the collective psyche. And I think actually there are many, many people doing this type of work now because we are at that time in history where... Uh, it's like we, we're at such a critical time in history if we don't heal the entire species, if the entire species doesn't make this transition to a, a different, healthier position, then we're going to lose the planet. And so I think a lot of people who are doing a lot of deep work from different, multiple methodologies are, are tapping into collective reservoirs of pain. And so that's what I found in my own work, that I went through years and years of this type of cleansing uh, and eventually it reached a culmination point and then it stopped, which became to me a real intellectual puzzle. Why does it stop? Because clearly there's pain remaining in the collective psyche. Why does it ever stop for the individual when there's still pain available that needs to be uh, healed? Well, why? <laughs> um, because it, actually, maybe you have uh, something to say about that. But I remember in earlier conversations we've had, um, mm -hmm. the impression I got, and it's a little muted in the way that I just heard it from you mm -hmm. now, uh, is that people who do choose to become a conduit for uh, this degree of collective suffering and, and experience it consciously with, with an open heart, um, if can, in some sense, uh, heal it, heal the collective psyche, but, um, and, you know, we've, we've talked about this in terms of, of the idea of what um, some other colleagues and myself are calling subtle, subtle activism right mm -hmm. now. And, um, like, for instance, Sri Aurobindo, we're here at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and yeah. Aurobindo's at the foundation of that. He, you know, many people believe, and he claimed to have played an instrumental role during the Second World War and the defeat of the Nazis. Yeah. Not a lot of people are aware of this, but he did it from his room, uh, yeah. uh, or he claims to have done it in, from his room, in uh, yogic states of encounters with Asuric forces that had taken over um, uh, Hitler and his followers. Now, a yeah. lot of people say that's insane, right, to, to believe that, that that's possible, but... So I, I remember reading Dark Night, Early Dawn. It seemed like you were making a, a similar kind of claim, which I can imagine a lot of people thinking either this is just ridiculous or it's hyperinflated. How, can, how could anybody feel yeah. that their individual experience could have any possible effect, yeah. uh, whether it's uh, meditating in a room or doing high-dose psychedelics? Do you have any yeah. thoughts uh, on That this? was a huge... Uh, challenge to me because it just felt like ego inflation. It felt like some inflated, you know, and uh, God, the last thing I wanted to do was inflate my bloated ego even more. I mean, that just, you know, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's not that. It's not that. Um, when you open, I, I don't have any, it, it, I had to overcome enormous resistance to even think the thoughts. Mm -hmm. But the thoughts that I began to think were the thoughts that were dictated by my experiences. Uh, and when you open up, what I, my experience was just opening up to um, 
thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds, thousands of years of collective suffering, and just somehow by opening up to it, processing it, by opening up my consciousness to it, letting it come through me, just flowing through me, um, and flowing... Well, it started with an episode that I call uh, Killing the Children. Right after I had finished, kind of went through the perinatal process and went through the death-rebirth process, and I thought, oh, good, here we go. We're going to get into some easier, better things. All of a sudden, I went through this experience where it was uh, the experience of having thousands of, of little baby babies, children being killed and destroyed and just hacked and cut to pieces and just shattered and... I was an old Oriental woman trying to make these soldiers stop killing the children. And uh, I couldn't make them stop. They just brushed me aside. There was this huge, terrible trauma. And uh, that was the pivot into going into the ocean of suffering. And later what I learned was that that was a reminder, that was an activator of a compassion that was in me reminding me of a choice that was made before I was born. It, it was a, a karmic choice, a soul choice to voluntarily participate and take on this work, which I only had a fragmentary knowledge of after I had begun it, or, or before I began it. After I did it and after I went through the process, then slowly I began to get the information to put the pieces together. And I, I say this, and, and I own this because... I really think that there are a lot of people out there who are doing this kind of work. I think that when many people are, are, are dealing and processing horrendous kinds of suffering in their life, uh, whatever type of abuse they're dealing with, or, or when they're just tapping in in their own life in whatever form to a suffering that seems radically disproportionate to circumstance, you can understand this in part in terms of karma, you know, you're cleaning out karma coming from your former lives and whatnot. But uh, Roger Wolger, past life therapist, he reached the same conclusion. He had so many clients who were cleaning up one life after another life after another life, he began to think the same thing, that somehow there were people who were basically lifting uh, this, this suffering out of the collective psyche. They were crystallizing it in their life in some way in order to affect a larger collective healing. And eventually... It begins to be seen as utterly natural. When you move into these expanded states, uh, you're not a human being having a transpersonal experience. You open up, and when you open up deeply and deeply and deeply, you go through a series of death-rebirth processes where... For those hours at a time, you are a different kind of being. You, you are living at a different level. And when you're working in what I call the ocean of suffering, you, you are at some level, uh, some aspect of the human species itself. That's what you are during those hours. You, you're, you're not your individual self having those experiences. You are somehow this collective pattern. And when you move deeper, you are those deeper patterns for those hours at a time. It's so... We have to really radically decentralize our our the way we concept we conceptualize these processes. Mm. We have to imagine ourselves. I think what these chemicals are allowing us to do is move not only to have radically expanded experiences, but to enter into radically different dimensions of intimacy with the universe. To to, to participate in different levels of the universe's experience for hours at a time. And then we shrink back eventually into our ordinary consciousness, but we are becoming a being who kind of moves back and forth into different experiential modalities. Once we make that radical transition to understanding the vast scope that we can move into, then it seems utterly natural that healing would take place at different levels other than your individual psych psychological level or your individual soul level or karmic level. It's just, mm. it's a natural thing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, 
but as to whether healing is actually taking place, of course, some people might say we have no no evidence for it. We have no. Um, I don't know how you could calculate it or how the, you could estimate it. No, certainly yeah. the the world. Uh, well, I mean, James Hellman had his famous book. You know, we've had a hundred years of psychotherapy, and the world's not getting yeah. better or getting worse. I'm not sure what. Yeah. But um, so whether or not there's healing uh, going on. Uh, yeah. In your case, that those kinds of encounters with what you call the ocean of suffering eventually ceased or ceased to dominate at least the yeah. sessions. No, they ended. They ended. And yeah. all right. Now, um, something else. I want to. I want to re- mm-hmm. return to to uh, dark night, early dawn in a minute. But <clears throat> I'm wondering, yeah, if somebody said for people who find themselves encountering these experiences, uh, there might be a worry of re-traumatization, for instance. Yeah. We, we know that, like, why, why do this if it seems like this is what's coming up yeah. over and over again? Yeah. But in a sense, you've already answered that. I, I, you don't need to repeat that. Uh, I think it's a compelling well, answer. Well, first of all, so, you, Somebody's got to do it, basically. <laughs> so, you know. I can easily see if you get into this and you're not grounded, if you're not prepared for it, or if you could easily get in over your head, you could easily do, you know, deep damage to yourself if you get into this type of material and you're not ready for it. What happens, at least in my experience, what happens in these sessions is you go into these very negative states, and if you open to them completely and let them take you where they want to take you, they come to a threshold, they come to some kind of climatic expression, and then you're spun into the second half of the session, which is the ecstatic half of the session, where you you move into some positive transpersonal experience, and there is a teaching, there's a, a you know positive expression. So the pattern is always in the sessions that the first half is this cleansing part and the second half is some this positive part and there's thematic continuity that there's continuity in the cleansing and continuity in the teaching and actually it's when you move into the positive ecstatic portions and you're entered into that kind of rapport with the creative intelligence of the universe that contextualizes and allows you to hold the negative suffering without being swallowed by it. Mm. Uh, so it's 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 really the balance of the two, which I think it, it gave me the stamina to be able to enter into that that suffering again. Uh, but yeah, I don't think you would want to take that territory on unless you were really uh, prepared for it, unless you felt a, a calling to it. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the the trend. <clears throat> at least in the Bay Area, over the last few years, has been towards microdosing, which is the polar opposite of uh, of psychedelic uh, or a single overwhelming uh, dose of the psychedelic yeah. sessions. Yeah. Um, and I was uh, speaking with a remarkable woman the other night um, who is uh, trained with South American shamanic traditions for many years, but uh, is also a um, practitioner of uh, traditional Chinese medicine and all kinds of other things. But, uh, and she she was speaking about how in in, uh, her work, uh, she works with master plants and often lower doses and is very wary of the single overwhelming dose. Um, Not only because um, it's hard to integrate, but... um, it's not, in her experience, necessarily the most helpful. I, I'm mm-hmm. very receptive to that idea. Uh, and we're not talking about a single overwhelming dose. No, 73. We're talking about case. 73 <laughs> overwhelming doses. Right. And so. it's, uh, again, <clears throat> I, didn't, I wouldn't do it the same way if mm-hmm. I did it again. And there, is a, there was a cost mm-hmm. along the way. Um, just practically, how did you how did you remember what happened? Because it's often very hard to yeah. to come to bring back and put down into words yeah. uh, when when the dose is that high. It is the challenge, particularly when you move into territory where you're in radically cognitively new territory. Uh, I developed a, a strategy, a methodology, and basically the the day after a session, the morning after a session. 
I first always write down the session within 24 hours. That's really important because within 24 hours, with LSD at least, you know, the, there's a kind of a window of porosity after this. After your system closes down, it, it closes down in layers, and within 24 hours, you got a certain porosity. And I would play the music that I had played during the session in exactly the order in which I had listened to it during the session. I would play it as repeating each section while I was writing the account and I would keep playing it until I felt I had gotten it down and then I would play the next piece of music and I would go there because at the on the day after in this way it's a condition that I call standing on the edge of the well you've got one foot in one foot out and by by basically going into the edge of your experience I was writing down as close as I could to an exact replica of the experience but when you're breaking new territory uh, you lose pieces. You lose pieces of the sessions. You just you can't pull them all in. The first time I broke through time, my mind just swallowed it. I could, I I didn't have any cognitive reference point for a temporal experience. Uh, but what I found is, if you keep going back over and over again, and you keep you maintain a discipline of absorption and a discipline of articulation. Pieces that you lose in one session, you regain in later sessions. And so that what is experiences which are fragmented in at one point with repetition become coherent and more, uh, more coherent. And so it's, it's an ongoing dialogue with the universe. And the universe is trying to teach you and you're trying to take in and it becomes more clear as we go. Mm. Actually, maybe at this point, let's, let's shift because I don't want to get too hung up on the the early stage, because the ocean of suffering is just no, like. No, actually, I, I want to ask you about uh, second one, act. one particular. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you know, Dark Knight, Early I Dawn. Mean, yeah. Uh, a big part of yeah. Dark Knight, well, it's, it's suggested in the title. Yeah. And this is, um, um, you know, published in 97. 20, 2000. Oh, 2000, but yeah. finished in 97. Yeah. So, okay. So clearly, since 97, the dawn has either been delayed or obscured or, you know, is there going to be a dawn? Uh, I want to ask you that. But um, the dark night, early dawn. The dark night is getting darker. Right. So you yeah. you had uh, quite a few um, sessions that spoke directly to what you felt was coming and yeah. that you feel is maybe a lot closer, if not already here. Yeah. Uh, can you say something about uh, this dark night and uh, the early dawn, which... Uh, I, I understand now you're you're yeah. speaking more explicitly uh, about in terms of the future human. But let's begin with uh, maybe Dark Knight or Dawn. When you let go of the boundaries of your individual life, one of the things that happened to me is in deep time in the soul. I began to I moved into a, an expanded domain of time where I experienced the whole of my life from birth to death as a totality. So the first expansion of the time went into a time window that included my entire life. Um, but eventually, if you keep pushing these boundaries, for some reason, I, I, I've had a lot of transtemporal experiences and transspatial experiences. So when you when you surrender your individual boundaries and move into collective boundaries and you begin to experience in, in a kind of precise and replicable fashion, the living entity of your species, in the same way that you can experience the living entity of your life, the living entity of your species, it's, it's very natural to experience the broader scope of the development of the species. And, and if you open up into the creative intelligence, which is the creative intelligence that's operating within your life, but also the creative intelligence that's operating within the species, the creative intelligence that's operating at the planetary level. If you move deeply into that intelligence, you find that that intelligence is operating on a scale of time that's just different orders, different magnitudes of time. And if you're, if you're, when you dissolve at kind of the more precise level, you move into the what I call the great expanse. You move into the larger patterns of history. And it was in that context that uh, I began to have a series of visionary encounters that seemed to be telling me or showing me an outline of what appeared to be the master story of the human species or just a, a portrait of what's happening and where we're going. 
And uh, for years, for about four years, I kept, had these series of visions about uh, that hum- humanity was at the cusp of a major transformative process, a major awakening, a major breakthrough into a different order of consciousness. And just it was just extraordinarily positive. And, and while, well, it was extraordinarily positive. There was nothing negative about it. it just It just seemed like a massive breakthrough, before and after. Uh, but it wasn't until 55 sessions into the series that I went through one particular experience where it took me into what appeared to be deep time. It took me into what I came to describe as the death and rebirth of humanity. It was a true death process. Uh, it was the dark night of our collective soul. You know, in mysticism, before mystical breakthrough, there's the dark night of the soul. There's a radical purification, breakdown of structures and whatnot. But this was this was a dark night of our collective soul. It was, it was a, a fundamental unraveling of the basic structures of our culture. It was losing control of the normal, of, of what we'd assumed as the conditions of our existence as a civilization. Uh, it, it just seemed to take us right down to the breaking point and broke us down until it became, we became a, a planet uh, struggling for survival, just absolute survival. It did not look like we were going to make it. And then, just as when you go through an individual death rebirth, there was a there was a moment where we went through a collective process, and there was a a a rebirth that took place in the very center of the species. And when we began to pick ourselves up out of this extreme crisis of deconstruction, there was an animation and an, an, an impact and a, a creativity and a co-creativity that just became exponential. And the message in the sessions was, this is going to be happening faster than you can imagine, faster than you can imagine. And in Dark Night Early Dawn, I tried to work out some of the, some of the fundamental mechanisms that might help us understand how we could do this, how we could travel as far as we needed to travel as fast as we need to travel. And I think you, in order to do that, you have to take it and understand that, take this down at the level of the collective psyche, that all of our individual psyches are, are basically grounded and embedded in a collective psyche, and that what individuals experience is also being absorbed and processed at the collective level. Uh, and so in Dark Night, Early Dawn, I, I bring in chaos theory and nonlinear systems theory and uh, Trigogene's work in dissipative structures. And the basic idea is that as we go into this period of profound destabilization, we're not only suffering it as individuals, but it's, it's impacting the collective psyche. And the collective psyche is basically being driven far beyond its normal equilibrium conditions. It's being driven into what physicists would call the far-frame equilibrium state. And the hypothesis that I formulated from the sessions was when the collective psyche is driven into far-frame equilibrium or non-equilibrium conditions, the psyche may show some of the conditions that physical systems that are driven into far-frame equilibrium conditions show and we can extrapolate from some of the things that happen in physical systems to what can happen in psychic systems and psychological systems. And I don't want to go too much into that, but basically the vision is, yes, we are going into a, a time of deep deconstruction, of deep suffering, of deep uh, loss of control. We're basically watching or participating in the dissembling of a civilization that was built on by the ego. The ego's experience of the world is that I'm here and you're there and we're separate. And so I can hurt you if it benefits me and I'm going to come out ahead because we're separate from each other. This is a culture base that, that reflects the fundamental psychological baseline of a highly developed, very intelligent, sophisticated individual psyche. But that creates winners and losers, and that creates everything that we're coming to the end of in this culture and all the limits that we're, we're dealing with. And that, that is not a psyche, I think, that can basically uh, 
create a viable future for our planet. I think that as the world is trying to become one, as we are trying to become an integrated planet and an integrated civilization, uh, there is something taking place inwardly uh, that is driving an inner evolution that keeps pace with an outer evolution. I think we're coming to a period of profound rebirth of human culture, just an extraordinary and the very some of the, the last visions that I was given at the very end of the process were very much centered on experiencing what what is the future human? What does the future human look like? What are the qualities of the future human? What's happening on this larger evolutionary trajectory? Uh, I wasn't looking for any of this, and I had no idea when I when I went into this work to be involved in any of these things, but eventually it became the dominant theme of all of my work. In fact, it, it kind of became the context which made sense of everything else, not only of my individual life, but made sense of the larger historical patterns that we were involved in. So I think we are coming to a, a, a moment of profound, not a moment, but a, a century of profound transformation. And I don't have any, you know, insights into the details of how, where, what, and why, or when, or any of those things. It doesn't work on that, doesn't work on that level for me. But the basic principle of deep, deep deconstruction, a breaking point, and a survival, transformation at a collective level, at a and a transformation that is so deep, it changes the fundamental conditions of the human psyche so that all individuals born after that point in time are operating out of a different collective psyche. The collective psyche itself has shifted. And when the collective psyche shifts, then every individual psyche operating out of the soup of the collective psyche is operating in a different world. That's, where we're, that's what I think we're going through and what we're going to. And we all knew what we were getting into before we were born. I don't. I think we're. I think basically, a lot of research shows us that we know what we were getting into before we were born. We're, there are no victims here. We're all volunteers. We chose that, that, that's, to participate. That's, that's dangerous. Dangerous talk there. I know it is. Um, uh, I know, and it takes a while to unpack what exactly it means. Because mm -hmm. I'm certainly, I know you're not saying that there are no real victims in the world. I know, but. Um, if I can interject here for yeah. a second. Uh, Please do. I mean, Jung, as you know, um, great pioneer, mentor of so many of us, on his deathbed wrote, according to Marie-Louise en France, um, some pretty grim uh, visions of what he, he saw coming. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't the first. I mean, there, there have been other prophetic voices even before Jung, whereas somebody like Thierry de Chardin was who lived through the First World War, Second World War, was really yeah. optimistic and, and saw uh, that we were headed towards some kind of radiant transformation uh, beyond the human as we have known it. So there are these two poles. Yeah. One is very grim. But of course, uh, what Jung didn't foresee and what Teilhard didn't foresee is that we are right now not only uh, committed to a radical transformation at the level of the psyche, but uh, the planet as... Uh, Every one of our ancestors, uh, even pre-human ancestors, pre-hominid, going back 65 million years, yeah. uh, are in danger of, of being gone forever. Yeah. I mean, so like the biosphere, as you know, is unraveling as we speak. Yeah. Um, the mass, six mass extinction of species is, is, yeah. is going to be cresting pretty soon if we don't turn the ship around. So um, failing a miracle big miracle or several, we're looking not only at civilizational collapse yeah. uh, and some kind of major collective psychical restructuring, yeah. but at a radical, uh, possibly the death of life as we've known it. Yes. And certainly um, a, a um, what seems like an apocalyptic loss of, of yes. life. So I, I guess I, I'd like to steer, I'm I starting to feel a bit enclosed in psyche here. Yeah. Like I, I, I hear you and I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I'm also, and this, this leads me to my, my other point, um, honoring the, I mean, my life wouldn't be what it, what it is without the psychedelic experiences I've had. Yeah. And I know that obviously that's true for you and many people here and listening. And 
if what you're saying is true and what we're what we know is happening in the world is the case namely we're right on the edge in yeah. this this dark night that's getting darker we don't know if there's going to be a dawn there may be i hope you're right in in, yeah. in your visions but assuming we don't have certainty yeah is it a good idea for people to be turning inward right now to be uh spending a lot of time and energy um certainly jung wouldn't have thought so right uh, yeah. the major religious traditions would say well yes turn in but there are there are methods to do so that have been used for for at least yeah. by most of the major traditions that um I'm talking about the the the, the overwhelming dose path. Yeah. Um, so, what would you say to somebody who is excited about your work, knowing, feeling what you do about where we are in the world right now, who yeah. uh, is tempted to uh, emulate you and follow your path? Is it is don't it a good it. idea? <laughs> I'd say don't do it. Uh, <laughs> first, I, I apologize. I get excited, and I I I, I try to cover too much territory mm. too fast, and you're. I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. You know, the severity of the ecological crisis, the global systems crisis that's accompanying it, it's just taking us into completely uncharted territory. We've never, you know, we're on the edge of losing the planet. We're on the edge of driving the human species to extinction and species extinction generally. Uh that to me is the driver of evolution. That is the driver of our evolutionary moment in time. I don't see this as a contra as an either or, either working inwardly or working socially. I mean, everybody has a particular calling to work on a particular aspect of this larger social transformation. I don't. Um, I don't recommend an exclusively interior focus in any way it's an adequate response to the enormity of the challenges that we're facing. Um, and I just, didn't mean to imply that, just yeah, so you know. It, I know yeah. that's true. Okay. It, I'm just trying to it get It just you. happens to be, this is, this happened to be what happened in my work. Mm. When, when, when I went into this, when I went here, a, a story that I never anticipated, never thought would be a story that I would be involved in began to unfold as a story which gave me an historical context for understanding a larger set of circumstances and set of events. I, I think there is a, a relation between what's happening in the planetary sphere mm -hmm. and what's happening to the human species as an evolving species inside that sphere. There's a concept that I, you know, this is the wrong, con we don't have much time to do these things, but I think reincarnation is just one of the facts of life. I think reincarnation is, is just the way life works. Uh, but I think that we have radically underestimated the implications of, re of reincarnation as a phenomenon. I think that ultimately reincarnation leads to a, a, a tr an accumulation of insight and knowledge and transformation that eventually there is, it leads to not simply more and more lives, but a, a, a crisis point where there is a fusion that takes place where there is a kind of summation fusion of all of our lives. There's a that leads us to begin to be born as a different kind of human being. I talk about this in terms of the birth of the diamond soul, that I think that we are coming to a point in history where not only is there a global transformation that's putting enormous pressures on us, but there is an inward maturational process which is taking place simultaneously so that the type of growing up into responsible stewardship, that may not be the right word, but responsible living on this planet with the other life forms of this planet in true collaboration with all the life forms of this planet contextualized within the solar system, contextualized within a galaxy. And a maturation that's taking place inside human beings 
where we are outgrowing the psychological confines that we have been living within for thousands and thousands of years. We think of ourselves as hundred-year beings. We experience ourselves as hundred-year beings. We live a hundred years. I think we are in the process of waking up to the fact that we are, in fact, hundred-thousand-year-old beings, and not just in theory, but we actually are waking up to an awareness of our history and a synthesis and a, and a fusion point where all of those former lives become integrated into a center of consciousness which includes them all but that matures beyond them. That's what I call the birth of the diamond soul. And I think it's going to take a, a transformation of that depth, or I don't know whether, I shouldn't say it's going to take. I think these two processes are taking place simultaneously. We are being pushed to extremes by the depth of our environmental crisis. And there is an inward maturation where we are trying to step up inwardly, but I don't think a bunch of egos are going to save the planet. I think there is a birth of soul that's taking place inwardly, and that when we come out of this process, we will not only begin to restore the planet, but the beings who will be restoring the planet will be more awake, more conscious, more alive, and more in conscious rapport with the universe than we were historically when we were just egos. Mm -hmm. Well, that would make sense. For, I mean, that's what I see in, in younger generations, and it would make sense since they, it's, they are the ones who are inheriting the world, I mean, in, in their 100-year in their lifetime. So yeah. uh, they're being called, they're being called forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're showing up enormously. Just there. Mm. Yeah. Now you're not. You're still teaching uh, uh, occasionally, but not too long ago you were you were teaching full time. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, did you? And, and the crisis was already. I mean, the dark night had already begun then. <clears throat> did you see? Uh, what did you see? And in, in, did you see something in your students? Well, I know you've had students here as well. So, but did you see evidence of? the birth of this new human in any of the younger people you've worked with already? Have you encountered them? Are, there, are they here yet? <laughs> yeah, I think they're showing up. I think they're showing up. And one of the ways they show up, actually, is not only in the um, extraordinary talent which you find in them, but in the, um, the depth of work that they're willing to take on. I mean, anyone who, who's willing to work for what needs to be done in our world today, we know that we're going to be doing it all our life. It's not going to be done in five years or a few decades. We're going to be doing it all our life. We're going to be doing it till the last day we breathe on this planet. And the willingness to take on work of that magnitude and to invest that deeply, that to me is it's maybe the signature of the emergence of, so, of that deep soul awareness because it's when you invest in projects which are larger than you mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways, time-wise, spatial ways, commitment-wise, when you invest in those type of projects, that kind of investment only really makes sense, I think, from a soul perspective. It doesn't make sense from a short-time egoic perspective. Mm -hmm. and, and that willingness to kind of invest your entire life in that type of project is, as much as anything else, a symptom of that type of work. Mm. I think that there is a, um, uh, there's a process that happens, and I watch it sometimes happening with people, there's a kind of popping, you know, there's this kind of a, you do your work, you do your work, you do your work, and then there are these moments when there's a popping. And uh, it really is like, uh, you know, the habitual patterns that kind of constitute our life and catch us for so much of our t days, that's that there, there are times when it pops. And when it pops, <clears throat> there is a, uh, a transparency. I mean, that's the Buddhist concept of shunyata, emptiness, but I prefer the translation transparency. When you become transparent and the boundaries between um, your life, the planet's life, other people's lives, just 
you know, it goes. Mm. And, you know, then the ego comes back and catches you again, and there's another time when it pops. But I've, I think that sense of popping, that, that opening into transparency, and I'm not talking about in non-ordinary states of consciousness, but in the work in between, uh, I think that's taking place more and more often. Mm. But I think we are, we're past, as some people have said, we're past the point of individual enlightenment. This is not a time of individual enlightenment. This is a time of collective enlightenment, where if we don't make a transition collectively, we don't have enough time for a lot of individual enlightenments to kind of take place. I think we're coming into a process where not only will more and more individuals be having this opening and, and this kind of emergence of soul awareness or into greater transparency, but we're actually coming into a process where literally it's it's going to be coming up from underneath the collective psyche. I mean, it's just just what's happening. I think that that popping is taking place at the at a collective level. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think if you you see all the people standing for the people at Standing Rock, you see uh, people yeah. standing together and standing up for for life, for water, for uh, other species, and for their fellow human beings who are, who are being oppressed. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is standing into that, that deeper, uh, wider identity that I think you're talking about. But it sounds like the, <clears throat> yeah. uh, what's happening and what needs to happen is the, the, non- the non-ordinary needs and is becoming ordinary in many ways. I mean, the non-ordinary in, in its horrific aspect is becoming ordinary. Um, we see it in the news all the time, but the the extraordinary, non-ordinary, the opening to a yeah. deeper ecological self, a wider transpersonal sense of self that, that can include our broken, fragmentary, uh, uh, limited egos that we need or that we, we've chosen in this lifetime. Yeah. That, that needs to happen, and it is yeah. happening, right? Yeah. It is. And... Uh, you know, we're coming out of a period, I mean, I, I've spent my life teaching at universities where the reigning religion at universities is a is a very, very crippling philosophy of matter only and random chance is driving the universe and it's all dead matter and consciousness just kind of popped in. We don't know how, but it's just a lucky set of fortuitous circumstance. And as soon as you die, your consciousness disappears. There was no meaning to your life. I mean, you know, that's you have a good life, you have an easy life, somebody else has a terrible life, there's no meaning to it, it's just random variation, it's just genetic, you know, roulette, and and then as soon as you die, all the hard work that you put into your life disappears in a puff of smoke, you know, and there's no, there's no purpose to it, there's no project to it, and all of that, I think, comes out of a very, very superficial experience of life, and one of the great blessings or opportunities that psychedelics can open you to is that it gives you an opportunity to move beyond that, to move into a deeper experience of the universe, to actually be touched by and, and remember the intelligence of the universe, the intelligence that gave birth to existence, the intelligence that gave birth to the planet, and the intelligence that's taking us into and through this crisis. You know, that, and, you know I'm not a soothsayer trying to, you know, sort out the future of small things. I mean, the large, the most important thing is to, is to reconnect with the creative intelligence of the universe to, to, to open up into those territories and to let it teach you, to let it take you, to let it... And then, I mean, to me, one of the driving forces of destruction is the vision that of a of a mechanical dead universe so this is just a chance driven matter dead matter uh, in contrast to a living universe, that there is sentience at the very foundation of existence, that there is intelligence operating in existence, that the circumstances of our lives are intelligent. The circumstances express a higher order of creativity. To engage that, even when we don't know the particulars of where we're going here and there, when, when you open and experience the intelligence of the divine, the intelligence of the universe, then that, that's such an overwhelming experience that you're willing to go along with what you don't see because of the, the depth of absorption of what you do see, what, what has touched you. And that, to me, is, is the great reminder, you might say, the reminder that 
uh, it really is intentional that our presence here is the act of supreme brilliance of extraordinary creativity uh, and it is it is trustable now the intelligence of the universe is extremely demanding I mean it's not like it's not like easy love I mean in the Hindu scriptures it says she eats her children life eats life you know that's very very hard and severe intelligence it's but there is an extraordinary intelligence that's working its way into the universe and through the living processes of the universe and through our own evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get into some of the later chapters, the benediction of blessings or the, the diamond luminosity, where I'm trying to describe experiences of, uh, of remembering, the deep remembering, the, the deep absorption into those processes that um, that opens up all sorts of just positive opportunities that you don't have in a dead universe. Mm. Well, if only we could get the transition team in for a single overwhelming dose, or 73 of them. <clears throat> um, <laughs> like I said, I wouldn't do it the same way. I wouldn't do it the same way again now, knowing what I know now. No. Knowing what I know now, I take a much gentler approach. In mm. I really would take a much gentler approach. Mm. Um, but you did what you needed to do, and we are all grateful that you did, Chris. Thank right. you. Thank you, Sean. been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.